So we want to look at that. And so what does Paul tell the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. And later on in the chapter, I just want to jump ahead for an important verse that you are familiar with, and now you know kind of the background of it a little bit more, and that's verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God that that is the culmination. He's going to engage as well, Paul, here about uh, the communion and uh, taking the Lord's table and the implications and applications of that. And, uh, but ultimately, we come down to his really dealing with one area of Christian living, and that was about their diet, believe it or not. This was all brought on by a, a discussion over whether you should eat meat that's been sacrifice to idols or not. If you go to the marketplace, almost all the meat you buy there has been sacrificed to one idol or another to bless it before they sell it to you. And so that was the issue. Should we buy meat sacrificed to idols or should we buy it from alternative sources? And uh, it became a big issue in Corinth. And some people using their Christian liberty said it doesn't matter. And other people were greatly offended and it became a contentious aspect of the fleshly nature of Corinth. And so tucked in the middle here is a very powerful passage that you can see how it is carefully uh, linked easily to Jude as well as First Peter 2. And so we um, find here the same examples, a few extras because they went a little bit earlier, and went not only to Cadus Barnea, which I mentioned this morning, but also to Mount Sinai. And I got those confused this morning, so I said that the one was before the law, because I was thinking of this event rather than that event. But before the law was given, as the law was given, what is Israel doing? They're down there making an idol, golden calf. And they're eating, drinking, and rising up to play. As the law is giving, being presented... Uh, through Moses, and so uh, their condemnation was there. Why? What was it that moved them to do these kinds of activities? Paul says these are all examples for us, negative examples, to warn us. 
to be careful about our engagement with this world. So let's go through what they did. We see in verses 1 through 4, the grace of God. So this is what they were able to participate in. And that's a pretty full list. And Paul does more than just say they were physical recipients of the grace of God. That we would all agree with there in Jude and other places. But he goes a step further and says, no, they were spiritually participating in the grace of God. They were spiritually partaking of Christ. That the, the source for the manna, the source for the water that came from the rock, the source of the meat, the source of everything that they had was Jesus Christ. And so he calls Jesus the rock. And by drinking and eating, they were participating by faith in the supply through grace in Jesus Christ. And he's going to bring that out later on in the chapter when he talks about communion, that when you partake of the bread and the, and the drink, that you are also participating in Christ Jesus, that you are expressing a faith in him and a oneness with him. And so when we look at this, for Paul, he takes a step further even than we did this morning, and he says, no, Israel wasn't just the recipients of God's physical grace, but of spiritual grace. They participated in it spiritually. They drank, they ate, they were delivered. They received all of that, and they had the same spiritual food. Every one of them were baptized the same way in the cloud and in the sea. Um, all of them went through all of this together. So what caused so many of them to receive God's judgment instead of his blessing? Well, there are going to be several levels, and I want to discuss this a little bit because I fear that when we talk, we're going to apply this to the idea of eternal security. But I want to make sure we get it accurate. There are going to be those that Hebrews and other passages of Scripture very strongly warn that once you get there, there is no coming back. That is, that once you turn your back so far against the things of God and participate so fully in the things of the flesh, there is no return avenue. There is no other way to get back because you rejected the only way, Jesus Christ. And so for them, there is only a promise of judgment. Uh, but there are others who do respond with immediate repentance uh, but they still have the consequence of that sin on them. And that applies to most of Israel. Most of them fall in that category. Because what happened to them when they repented at Kadesh Barnea? Yes, some of them were still in rebellion. They're going to run up to and conquer Canaan. They, they, thousands of them get killed. Um, immediately, death. But most did not. What happened to them? Well, for the next... 39 years, 6 months, or 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And that word wandering, by the way, is going to come up again in Jude. It's going to be really important. We're going to study it extensively. The idea of wandering is never, ever in the Bible used in a positive way. Never. And so when you sing the Christmas song, I wonder as I wander, maybe we should change that to I wonder as I stroll or something. <laughs> but uh, wandering is never good in the Bible. And so we find them wandering in the wilderness, but while they're there, what's happening for them? Is God's grace cut off from them? No, they are having their shoes never wear out. The manna never fails. It's there six days a week, and on the sixth day, there's enough for two days, so they have it available seven days a week. 
Water is always available. God takes care of them. And they just, over the course of natural death, natural reasons, die. But they're all going to die except for Caleb and Joshua in the desert. And so sometimes it is a direct, immediate reaction to their sin. And we say, well, were they people of faith or not? And we are, by the biblical call um, here, not told to describe them as saved uh, or not to have been fully uh, enjoying the, the pleasure of God. For they displeased him, brought about on them his wrath, and that word is used, that the wrath of God came upon them. His wrath was kindled against them. And the New Testament concept is that we are saved from wrath through Christ. And so if we are receiving the wrath of God, it would tell us that we are not in Christ. So um, we're going to look at these examples, and we're going to see these, those that were killed immediately, and the rest repent. They are sorry. They come back, and they, as the judgment is happening, and we saw it this morning, as there was fire outside consuming people, what did the people do? They ran to Moses, oh, and they cried out, deliver us, we're sorry. Um, we're going to see that over again. When the serpents start biting, as referred to here by Paul in Corinthians, when the serpents started uh, killing everybody, what happened? They started to cry out to the Lord. That is, they were sorry, and they repented of it. And Moses was told to carve a serpent, put it on a staff, hold it up, and whoever looked would live. You had to look at the serpent to live. So you had to demonstrate a real faith in God, that even if you've been bitten by a deadly viper, you looked at the serpent and you lived. It was an act of faith to demonstrate that you are truly following after God. And so we have these examples. And when we look at them, our conclusion is, is that some were destroyed immediately and there was no evidence of them ever turning or returning to Christ. But there are others who are in repentance and God sustains them, at least for a season. We don't know if the same people were the ones that were getting into trouble all the way along. We don't know from event to event which ones were involved in all of them or if it was a group, different group each time. We were only really told a couple of times the limitation of who was involved. And that was in the rebellion of Korah. We're going to be studying later uh, Miriam and Aaron that we saw this morning as an example. Uh, we have a very specific group listed that were in rebellion and they were judged. Um, but generally it's just uh, the people. And so we really have those two different distinctions. And I want to make that distinction because in the, the very strong parable that we use about eternal security um, is the parable of the sower and the soil and the seed. And where Jesus Christ said, this gospel goes out as seed, the soil is men's hearts, some receive it gladly. They're ready to join Israel and tromp across the Red Sea gladly. Baptized in the Red Sea, they eat manna, they drink water that came right out of a rock. You go, wow, these people are the real deal. But then, what happens in the parable? What happens next? The sun comes up. Very important. The sun comes up, and now we find out if they have any roots. Now, I've been pulling weeds, and what I've noticed about the weeds I'm pulling is that 
I think this must be, every desert plant has this. What's, what's the first root they send down? Tap root straight down, deep as they can. And so you pull that root. And I used to think that when I was pulling some of those weeds, I was getting most of the root. And uh, Scott and I were out weeding this week up the Bahamas, so it would be nice and pretty for you guys for the 4th of July. And um, we, some of them are small because we weed and weed and weed. So these are like only a year old or two years old, and we think we're pulling the whole root. And then you realize that it really did break off. And even then, they're this long, but you notice that there's a lot longer left. And uh, when we dig, dug Julie and Cody's basement house, and I saw just how far down those roots went, when you see a, a, a bisection of the land, you go, oh my goodness, that root is like three feet long all the way down. And that's why those plants survive, even in the hottest and worst climate, because they have a developed root. Well, these plants that gladly received God's word, were baptized, had every evidence of life about them, when the sun came up, they died. That is very disturbing to us in terms of our understanding of the Christian walk. What does that mean? Do you lose your salvation? Well, Hebrews, other passages, makes it very clear that if you do not endure the trials put upon your faith, that your faith is not salvific. It's not saving faith. It is not sufficient. And therefore, uh, you were enjoying the grace of God, but you were not committed to God. You had not surrendered your all to him that we sang a little earlier. I surrender all. Um, but rather that you just, wanted to, uh, you just wanted to receive the blessings without the testings. So what do we find about Israel? Well, they go out in the desert. Could God have provided water and meat for them without them complaining? Could he have done it? Certainly. He knew they were thirsty. He knew that they kind of were hankering after some meat. Um, these were tests. These were tests of their faith. I just walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Do you think I would bring you out here to have you die in the desert of thirst? But that's what they accused God of doing. And they accused Moses of this. You have brought us out here to kill us. And so when you hear them saying, well, you are denying the Lord God by your complaining, by your false accusation against God's grace, you are basically saying that um, I came on, I thought this was going to be an easy-peasy road. I mean, God's power was evident against the Egyptians. I figure if I follow the people of God across the Red Sea, that everything's going to, you know, that you're going to have little stations everywhere where they are fully equipped and, and you're going to have servants ready to feed us and give us drink. Not ever thinking, well, there's going to be a test. God's going to test your faith. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And every time, instead of praying prayers of trust and of faith, what did they do? They complained and grumbled. And God was infuriated by this. You want something? Ask. Why grumble? You didn't ask for it. It's like the child at the table that where everyone's getting ice cream and they didn't get any ice cream. They're like, I don't get any ice cream. You didn't ask. You just expected it. And there is, and we know that we consider, at my house, we trained our children not to be that because that is the wrong attitude. It is serving our flesh. And so as we look through this, these things and we look at these examples, 
we find out that they wanted all the blessings and they thought that the Christian life would be a, a, um, just an easy drive through the park uh, rather than a, a wild roller coaster ride. No, it's not a roller coaster. It's a lot of uphill and there's valleys of the shadow of death we have to go through. There are things to endure. And by doing that, we are demonstrating something. Hebrews 11 tells us, another, and James tells us, by enduring that, you are demonstrating you are rooted in Christ. You're not just there for uh, the good stuff. You're there during the hard times. You're there. You are God's person. And you will follow him. Follow Jesus. I will follow Jesus, the song goes. Where, where he leads me, I will follow. No matter what. No matter where, I'll follow Jesus. It doesn't mean I expect everything to be wonderful. Sometimes I'm going to be thirsty. Sometimes I'm going to be hungry for things I don't have. Uh, sometimes I'm going to be disappointed. Uh, and the response that I have to God shows my relationship with him. Am I really trusting him? Do I recognize his grace in my life? Or am I going to become a complainer that's going to incite his wrath against me? So we have Israel involved in the list here is, is evil things, uh, that they lusted after evil things, verse 6, verse 7. They became idolaters, verse 8. They committed sexual immorality, verse 9. They, they, they tempted Christ, uh, and that's in the event of the serpents. And if you want to look at that um, there in Numbers 21 or in Exodus um, 14, 15, 17, um, the account, I think it's Exodus 17, I'm not sure. Um, the account of, that, of the record of that event, what did they do to tempt Christ? Well, that was the, the event of water from the rock. Uh, you're going to bring us out here to kill us. Uh, you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. And Moses cried out, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. What were they concerned about? Their physical bodies, as though God wouldn't take care of them. And instead of praying and asking, they complained in a nasty way to the point that they were going to kill Moses and go back to Egypt. That's what is listed here as tempting Christ. What are they tempting Christ? How does this tempt Christ? How is this any different than what Satan did in the wilderness in tempting Christ. What did he say? How did Satan tempt Christ? Yeah. Um, turn these, you're, you're hungry, it's been 40 days, here's some stones, turn them to bread. And how is them saying, we dare you to give us water here in the desert, Different than Satan saying, I dare you to turn these stones to bread. Stones to water, stone to bread. Do you see the correlation? So in Paul's mind, Israel played the role of Satan tempting Christ. Well, no wonder God got angry. I've already shown my power, and now you're saying that I don't have the power to do this, and you're trying to test, tempt me. And so there's tempter, and then some of them, verse 10, complaining. Complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
there in verse 10. So you have five different sins committed by Israel. Uh, and we looked at complaining quite a bit this morning. But I want you to just notice that they went through this gamut of things and God instantaneously, very quickly, destroyed many of them. And Paul lists one of them, that uh, 23,000 of them after sex, that committed sexual immorality uh, died in one day. Uh, others died in battling the Canaanites. Others died, the earth swallowed up some. Um, there, we're going to see later on Jude. Uh, so God dealt with the instigators immediately. And perhaps the only example that we've used so far where there was an instantaneous death was Miriam, and that was instantaneous judgment, but because of Aaron crying out to Moses and Moses to God, she was delivered. But the, the intention of the text was she was going to die of leprosy very quickly if they hadn't done that just as those who had been bit by serpents would have died very quickly if they didn't look at the serpent to live. And so we see two categories of these individuals, those that look and live, those that immediately repent and realize, what have I done? The consequences are here. Um, and um, do what is God calls them to do to rectify a situation. And those that are in the act of it, in that full rebellion, and God simply destroys them. And those that are destroyed, I would contend, are those that die uh, in the parable of the sower, the soil, and the seed. Um, there are other seeds that grow but don't produce fruit because they're choked out by weeds. These are Christians that still might stay Christians, but they're not productive. They don't do anything for God. And they're kind of scary because I don't know if you know what happens in a weedy garden. Uh, while I was gone, my garden didn't get weeded. So guess what happens when I come home and weed? My weeds have gotten taller than my plants, some of them significantly taller. So when I tried to pull them out, what happened? So when I try to weed my peas and I pull this weed out, the pea plant comes right with it and I've lost the plant. So what's the point in weeding it? And to some degree, that's what many Christian lives are like in this age because we've got all these weeds in our heart, all these things we are attached to, and it's like, well, how can God get those out of your heart without, and then once he does that, you're going to have such bitterness that you're not going to follow him. You, they have that much entanglement. And so you're just going to be an unfruitful Christian, and you're going to uh, be saved as through fire, the Bible says. <laughs> All right? And uh, you become unproductive, and so there's no point in you. You might as well just plow you back under and start over. Because we can't get the weeds out of your life. You're so enthralled with them, so taken by them. And that's a very dangerous position to be in as well. Uh, but then there's the ones that are rooted, are in good soil, that your heart is receptive, it is completely committed to God, and you're fruitful. There's righteousness, and there's production, and there is life. And for those individuals who, when the sun comes up, they survive and, and thrive. Because they are rooted all the way down. You do realize that if the roots of your plant have a water source, the sun above can't kill them. They really can't. They'll survive. Uh, and so we anticipate that if we will put our roots into Christ, that we'll endure. And so we have these examples that we should be careful. 
Paul says, these examples are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So he says, listen, that happened a long time ago. Now we're in the end of the ages and there's going to be a lot of things. There's going to be a lot, two things. There's going to be a lot of temptations and there's going to be a lot of trials. We're in the end of the ages. And you're going to encounter a lot of temptation and a lot of trials. The two things Israel failed at over and over and over again. They just couldn't see all that quail and not bite into it, even though they knew it was wrong. They just couldn't do it. They yielded to that temptation. And they yielded and they fell in the trials where God says, I'll let you get a little thirsty and see how you respond. And instead of just praying and trusting the Lord, they complain and grumble against God. And so these are the two things you're going to encounter in the end of the ages, Paul says. You're going to have the trials, you're going to have the temptations. So what does he say to happen? He says, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So the first thing to help you endure is to recognize that you're going to face Trials and temptations. Don't think it's above you. Don't think you're above them, I should say. Don't think, oh, that happens to other people, not to me. I'm too old to sin. We aren't, are we, Mrs. Fry? We're not too old to sin. We aren't too old. We still have trials and temptations. Don't think that you're beyond them. Take heed, watch out, because you could fall just as easy as the Israelites. They saw the power of God in Egypt against the Egyptians. They walked on dry ground across the desert. That morning, they ate manna. God graced them that morning with manna, and they were complaining against him by the afternoon about no water. So don't think that you can't start grumbling and complaining against God to the point of him saying, you're not my child, I'm going to destroy you. Be prepared, which means humble yourself and recognize I could be susceptible to this, so I need to take heed, not just sit there and says, I'll, I'll endure it all. Blah, blah, blah. Well, that's a, a lot of bravado, but when it actually comes, what's going to happen? When someone actually says, either you give up your God or you give up your job. You give up your God or you give up your property. Give up your God or give up your life. We'd all like to say, oh yes, I would choose God over that's all it is if we don't realize that maybe it's do this and give up your God. Give up your God and do this sin. Be immoral. Take this idol and add it to your God. And that's what broke Israel more often than anything else. And so let's not get this notion that somehow we are above all this and Israel was a bunch of stupid heads and we're smarter. 
Take heed, watch out, lest you be the one to fall next. By thinking of their, your own flesh and by being unprepared for the trials that come. So, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So every trial, every temptation is common. That is, it is shared experience. You don't have, you, and I have people say, oh, pastor, you don't know how hard it was for me. <laughs> That's what I think of that argument. You don't know how hard I have it. Oh, oh, if you only you could walk in my shoes. Baloney. You don't think I'm tempted? You don't think those things have the same impact on me and on other people around you? No temptation is uncommon. They are all common. Don't give me that line because it's not going to go anywhere. The problem wasn't that you were tempted more than you could handle or that you had some unique temptation no one else could ever understand or believe or, or endure. The problem is you thought you were untouchable and you could do what you wanted and you got caught in a temptation and you fell because you didn't trust in God. You didn't center yourself in his word. And the Bible says that your temptation is common. Other people have it too. They got through it. You should be able to. But God is one who's faithful. And don't tell me that you were tempted beyond what you were able. It just was so hard. No, God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. That means you can always say no. Don't give me the idea that you couldn't handle it. Because that is not an accusation against me. It is empowering the evil one and is an accusation against God. You're saying that God wasn't great enough for you to be righteous. It is an accusation against his grace in your life. He'll always give you a way of escape. He'll always allow you to get through it, to endure it, to um, have self-control. Um, is really the word there at the end of verse 13, that you may have self-control. God will always enable you to do that, to have it. You can do it. That's the Holy Spirit's job is to give you self-control, right? Uh, and so, uh, and he talked about that earlier in chapter 9, be temperate, self-control. Uh, you can overcome it. You can bear it here is the word um, in verse 13. You can uh, last. You, you can endure it. You can get through it. Uh, you exercise a little temperance, a little self-control, you'll get through it. So don't give me the excuse, I couldn't help it. You could have if you trusted God. And then the other side of the coin is later on in the chapter that we read, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So don't walk through your life trying to avoid temptation. Temptation is going to come into your life. Trials are going to come into your life. That's the promise of God. You walk in an evil world. You have the evil one against you. You have your own flesh you're dealing with. You are going to encounter temptation. But prepare yourself for it. How do I prepare myself for temptation? Well, I commit myself every day I want to glorify God today. I want to bring glory to God. Every decision I make, every word I speak, everything I want to bring glory to God. 
Will I succeed every day? Maybe not. But I'm going to attempt it every day. I'm going to pour all my energies into saying, I want to please God. So when I go to work, I want to be the best worker I can, not to keep my job, not because I want to get a raise. I want to go to work and be the best worker I can to glorify God at work. Why am I going to try to be the best father, best, best husband I can? Because I want to glorify God in my home. And the best way for me to do that is to be the very best husband I can, and that brings glory to God in every facet of the marriage. Are you bringing glory to God? Whatever you do, do it to God's glory. Can you glorify God in sin? No. Can you, can you excuse it? No, you can't twist sin into something that glorifies God. And we try to, and that's what the creepers do as they come in with their, with their twisting of the grace of God. It brings God no glory for you to go out there and commit these kinds of acts of sin First among them is complaining, over and over and over again, complaining that leads to uh, the evil things that you lust after, that brings idolatry, sexual immorality, and ultimately the tempting of Christ. We have the warnings. You can get past it. So pray what the Lord tells you to pray, and that is deliver us from the evil one. So God is not on the sidelines uh, with a record book to see if you make it. He is with you in the field. So when we engage God, say, Lord, deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from temptation, and we pray that prayer, uh, we are coming to God and saying, I don't want this in my life. I want to glorify you. Please help me. And his promises that he will. But the trials are there to see, are you going to try to do it your way, or are you going to try to go to God and say, help me? The people could have easily prayed instead of complained. They could have easily asked God for water instead of complained for water. And I learned this lesson a long time ago in Virginia. And I really didn't realize, because I was a young person and not attuned to how people, gentlemen, don't ask. They're too proud to ask for things. So, man, I've been working outside. It's hot. It's Virginia summer. It's humid. He's sweating, and he comes by. He's lost or something. He came by our house to use the phone, and as he stood there and waited for, I don't know, a ride or something, he just kept saying how, how thirsty and how hot it was. But he never asked for a drink. And, of course, we we're just all teenagers. Mom and Dad weren't home. I was, like, 14 or something. Uh, Virginia, yeah, 15, something like that. Never occurred to us that what he really wanted was a drink. He just kept talking about how thirsty, how hot he is. Oh, it's hot. Oh, it's hot. Boy, I'm thirsty. It's like, you could have just asked us for a drink. And I didn't think about it until about three days later after he left. I said, I think he wanted a drink. But I'm a teenager. I don't, I'm clueless, you know, I'm, I'm to those social clues. Oh, he wants a drink. Um, Instead, but he could have gotten a drink by just saying, may I have a drink? And that's kind of our approach to God too many times. Why complain when you can ask? 
Ask God for help. You got a temptation? Ask him for help. Don't be surprised how the help comes, but ask him. Ask for his provision. You have a longing in your heart and soul for something? Ask him. But better make sure that longing will glorify him. Ask yourself, is this longing glorifying to God? Or is it something I need to be brought under control, self-control to glorify God? Is God more glorified by my longing being met or by my controlling it? And yes, both can glorify God. We prefer the first one because we get our desires met. But many times, the best way to glorify God is to bring those desires under control. You say, well, I don't need that. I can live without that. I don't have to have that in my life. And maybe one day I'm going to have to make a choice and not have ice cream the rest of my life. Um, that's going to be a really rough one. I'm pretty sure, though, I can bring it under control if I have to. <laughs> Is that what every addict says? <laughs> I can control it if I have to. Are we driven in our decision-making by our fleshly desires or by the desire to glorify God? Can you glorify God in what you're doing this week? And that will help you avoid temptation and trials both. Israel just needed to commit themselves to glorifying God. And a couple of guys did. We know Joshua and Caleb did. We know Moses did. We know that many of them did, for the most part. And what, you know what else we know? All of their children did. Their children figured it out by watching mom and dad die in the wilderness. We should follow God. We shouldn't complain. They learned the lessons. And they went into the promised land, and, and they kicked Canaanite butt because they learned not to complain against God, to do what he says, to obey. And when one of them didn't obey, they took him out. You're gone. You and your family, you're dead. We're not messing around with unrighteousness. So yes, it can be done. The next generation proved it. But that generation died in the wilderness except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. It can be done. But you have to trust in the Lord. Trials and temptations will come. They'll never be too strong. You need to trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and your grace and all the goodness you have provided for us. And Lord, it's easy for us to think that that's all there is to salvation and no expectations or requirements once we receive that. But Lord, we see that too often we think of salvation only as the good things we get and not the committed relationship that we are called to. And so Lord, help us to renew a spirit of commitment to you, not to our own getting, but to your glory. That we might recognize that we are recipients of your grace, and as such we should be full of thanksgiving and just want to give back to you as much as we can, as often as we can, and knowing that it in no way pays you back for all that you've done for us. And so we do it just as a gesture that we love you, and we are thankful for what you've done. Help us, Lord, to do that this week, to glorify you in all that we do, say, all that we eat and drink, all of the words that we say. Lord, keep us, remind us throughout this day of, of this message and throughout the weeks and months to come, not to complain, not to grumble, but to just serve you.
however you choose for us to do that day by day, we might do our best to glorify you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.